I mentioned at the top of the program that uh, that I was trying to get back into the cockpit of an aircraft and, you know, become a pilot yet again. At least, well, uh, I've always been a pilot, but what I'd like to become is a competent pilot yet again. And no, it really isn't like riding a bicycle. There's a lot of mental processing that goes on to, to fly an aircraft safely, and, and well, it does, it does take a little rehab, at least so I'm finding it. Or I'm finding so anyway. I don't doubt that Chuck Yeager could lay off for a year and, you know, take the yoke and still fly as good as ever, but I think he's in the minority. But this leads me to a piece I pulled out of the archives I wanted to, to beat on again. It was a uh, the last word section of the Week magazine from the very end of the year 2011, beginning of 2012. The title was The Mystery of Expertise, article by a man named David Eagleman noting there is a chasm between what the brain knows and what our minds can fathom. The piece started this way. Consider the simple act of changing lanes while driving a car. Try this. Close your eyes, grip an imaginary steering wheel, and go through the motions of a lane change. Imagine that you are driving in the left lane and you would like to move over into the right lane. They suggest before reading you actually try it. If you're listening online, you can pause this and, and, and actually give it a go. But if you're listening live, well, let me go on. It's a fairly easy task, notes the author. I'm guessing that you held the steering wheel straight and then banked it over the right for a moment and then straightened it out again. No problem. He notes that, like almost everyone else, you got it completely wrong. The motion of turning the wheel rightward for a bit then straightening it out again would steer you off the road. You just piloted a course from the left lane onto the sidewalk. The correct motion for changing lanes is banking the wheel to the right, then back through the center, and continue to turn the wheel just as far to the left side, and only then straightening out. Don't believe it? Verify it for yourself when you're next in the car. It's such a simple task that you have no problem in accomplishing it in your daily driving. But when forced to access it consciously, you're flummoxed. He goes on, the lane-changing example is one of a thousand. You are not consciously aware of the vast majority of your brain's ongoing activities, nor would you want to be. It would interfere with the brain's well-oiled processes. The best way to mess with your piano piece is to concentrate on your fingers. The best way to get out of breath is to think about your breathing. The best way to miss the golf ball is to analyze your swing. Notes: Remembering motor acts like changing lanes is a type of implicit memory, which means that your brain holds knowledge of something that your mind cannot explicitly access. Riding a bike, tying your shoes, typing on a keyboard, steering your car into a parking place while speaking on your cell phone are examples. You execute these actions easily, but without knowing the details of how you do it. You would be totally unable to describe the perfectly timed choreography with which your muscles contract and relax as you navigate around other people in a cafeteria while holding a tray. Yet, you have no trouble doing it. This is the gap between what your brain can do and what you can tap into consciously. And I got to say, what really fascinates me about this article was the two examples they provided of this phenomenon. First, when chicken hatchlings are born, large commercial hatcheries usually set about dividing them into males and females, and the practice of distinguishing gender is known as chick sexing. Sexing is necessary because the two genders receive different feeding programs, one for the females, which will eventually produce eggs, and another for the males, which are typically destined to be disposed of. Only a few males are kept and fattened up for meat. So the job of the chick sexer is to pick up each hatchling 
and quickly determine its sex in order to choose the correct bin to put it in. The problem is the task is famously difficult. Male and female chicks look pretty much alike. Well, the Japanese invented a method of sexting chicks known as vent sexing, by which experts could rapidly ascertain the sex of one-day-old hatchlings. Beginning in the 1930s, poultry breeders from around the country traveled to the Zen Nippon Chick Sexing School in Japan to learn the technique. The mystery was that no one could explain exactly how it was done. It was somehow based on very subtle visual clues, but the professional sexers could not say what those clues were. They would look at the chick's rear where the vent is and simply seem to know the correct bin to throw it in. And this is how the professionals taught the student sexers. The master would stand over the apprentice and watch. The student would pick up a chick, examine its rear, and toss it into one bin or the other. The master would give feedback, yes or no. After weeks of this activity, the student's brain was transferred into a masterful, albeit unconscious, level. Second example. During World War II, under constant threat of bombardment, the British had a great need to distinguish incoming aircraft quickly and accurately. Which aircraft were British planes coming home and which were German planes coming to bomb was an important distinction. Several airplane enthusiasts had proved to be excellent spotters, so the military eagerly employed their services. These spotters were so valuable, the government quickly tried to enlist more spotters, but they turned out to be rare and difficult to find. The government therefore asked the spotters to train up some others. It was a grim effort. The spotters tried to explain their strategies, but failed. No one got it, not even the spotters themselves. Like the chicken sexers, the spotters had little idea how they did what they did. They simply saw the right answer. With a little ingenuity, the British finally figured out how to successfully train new spotters by trial and error feedback. A novice would hazard a guess, an expert would say yes or no. Eventually, the novices became, like their mentors, vessels of the mysterious, ineffable expertise. Anyway, I had to laugh at the conclusion of the article, which was that the conscious mind is not at the center of the action of the brain. Instead, it is far out on a distant edge, hearing but whispers of the activity. As Carl Jung put it, in each of us there is another whom we do not know. And as Pink Floyd put it, there's someone in my head, but it's not me. And I guess it's undeniable that at some point, if we note that this is true, and surely it is, then there is something to be said about how people react with their gut. It would seem, based on this line of reasoning, and the study cited in, in the piece, that we do have an ability to make correct judgments that, well, we can't explain. We do hasten to add that when we have people in positions of authority, such as George W. Bush or currently Donald Trump, who seem to rely on their gut instincts in making decisions, that we cannot always be confident that they are the correct ones. When it comes to Donald Trump, we are not convinced that even if he spent a great deal of time at the Zen Nippon Chick Sexing School in Japan, that he would actually learn the technique. And speaking of political decision-making, and sadly, we're going to have to segue into a little bit of that. How about this stunning little item that didn't seem to get the press that it probably deserved? I mean, it, it was mentioned, but it certainly was not a page one item. We think it should be. 
The Washington Post and others noted recently, and there was, there was a discussion of this on NPR, that, uh, well, just weeks before the Supreme Court is expected to rule on whether the Trump administration can add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, new evidence has emerged suggesting that the question was crafted specifically to give an electoral advantage to Republicans and whites. Now, to anyone who, you know, has a pulse, I don't think this should be surprising. I mean, yes, they've, they've had other reasons offered up for why they have to have this question on, uh, on the census, but surely you didn't believe any of those, did you, dear listener? Anyway, the Post notes that evidence was found in the files of a prominent Republican redistricting strategist, which you got to love that part, a redistricting strategist, since gerrymandering is one of the main reasons why Republicans are able to have their um, death grip on power in this country. I mean, congressional districts get drawn by state legislatures. The Republicans have spent a lot of effort to put their people in charge of state legislatures. They draw the line so that Republicans are overrepresented in state after state after state, and thus in Congress. But I digress. Thomas Hofeller, one of the main movers in in all of this, uh, died last August. Uh, And apparently in looking through some of his hard drives, or at least was done by his estranged daughter, they found some interesting things. What they found was that Hofeller played a significant role in orchestrating the addition of the citizenship question to the census in order to create a structural electoral advantage for, in his own words, quote, Republicans and non-Hispanic whites, unquote. Plaintiff's lawyers challenging this question wrote in a letter last Thursday to the U.S. District Judge Jesse Furman, one of the three federal judges who ruled against the question this year, arguing that Trump administration officials purposely obscured Hofelter's role in court proceedings. NPR reported, although the Washington Post apparently did not here in the piece I have in front of me, that the wording in Hofeller's suggestion and the wording on the census question are, are pretty much identical. Hofeller's uh, described a strange daughter, Stephanie Hofeller Lazan, after finding this on, uh, on her dad's hard drive, uh, turned them over to Common Cause, which is challenging the gerrymandering uh, that took place in North Carolina. The files on the computer showed that Hofeller concluded in a 2015 study that adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census would clearly be a disadvantage to the Democrats and benefit white Republicans in redistricting. Hofeller then pursued the idea with the Trump administration in 2017. This evidence, it should be noted, first reported in the New York Times, contradicts sworn testimony by Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross's expert advisor A. Mark Newman and Senior Justice Department official John Gore, as well as other testimony by defendants. The Justice Department officials said the agency was unaware of the allegations in the motion, but will file a response. Officials of the Commerce Department did not respond to questions about the new information. The ACLU filed a motion in district court last Thursday for sanctions and any other relief the court deems appropriate because of apparently untruthful testimony by Trump administration officials in the earlier trials. Yes, apparently this, 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 this um, um, citizenship question is being promoted as well, it's, uh, either as some sort of anti-terrorism device or, or also as a way to help help more minorities vote. Uh, if anyone out there believes that the Trump administration is going pedal to the metal 
by putting this question in the census to help more minorities get out there and vote. I would like you to write us at info@radioparallax.com so that we can arrange the sale of the Brooklyn Bridge. And since we have tumbled into the uh, the great swamp of, of politics in the program, as sadly we do on a regular basis, how about this headline? Foreign voting hacking inevitable. Piece by Eric Tucker and Colleen Long, available on the Internet, notes that the hacking of U.S. election systems including by foreign adversaries, is inevitable. And the real challenge is ensuring the country is resilient enough to withstand catastrophic problems from cyber breaches, government officials said last week. The article notes that Special Counsel Robert Mueller has documented a sweeping effort by Moscow to meddle in the 2016 election in Donald Trump's favor by hacking Democrats and spreading disinformation online. And FBI Director Chris Wray said in April that last November's midterm election was a dress rehearsal for the big show in 2020. Anyway, I love this article. It quotes Chris Krebs, head of the Department of Homeland Security's cyber efforts, as saying, 100% security is not the objective. It's resilience of the system. So even if you do have a bad day, it's not a catastrophic day. Well, how bad a day was election 2016? I, I, some, some might consider it catastrophic. But there's more. Officials also say they were confident that Russian hacking the targeted voter databases in two Florida counties before the 2016 election had no impact on the vote total there. Sure. Hillary Clinton was like 2% up in the exit polls and lost by like a percent and a half. I'm, I'm sure that was just, you know, a little statistical blip. And probably had nothing to do with any Russian hacking. Don't you agree? Anyway, all this came out of a, uh, some testimony uh, from tech companies and government officials that were was given to the House Oversight and Reform Subcommittee. Adam Hickey, Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department's National Security Division, just sort of said, well, hacking was inevitable. Elaborating that systems that are in, connected to the Internet, if they're targeted by a determined adversary with enough time and resources, they will be breached. So we need to focus on Resilience. <laughs> yes, Mr. Millen suggests bouncing back the day after the election. You know, I want to ask, has anybody even thought about using thoughts and prayers? Anyway, I, I cannot resist quoting further from Adam Hickey, who told the House subcommittee, we need to take a breath. We need to let the states evaluate it. We need to let investigators respond, and we need to have confidence in our elected representatives and our state officials that they've got this, because they deal with contingencies all the time. Adding, if we undermine ourselves, the confidence in our system, we will be doing our adversaries' work for them. Oh, you'll be reassured to know that representatives from the major tech firms, including Facebook, Google, and Twitter, also testified at these hearings. Nathan Gleber, evidently the Facebook uh, company's head of cybersecurity policy said Facebook cares deeply about protecting the integrity of the democratic process. We don't want anyone using our tools to undermine our elections or democracy. Oh, so I guess so I guess they did resort to thoughts and prayers. He noted that Facebook has more than 30,000 people working on safety and security across the company, which is three times as many as it had in 2017. So you think it's fair to summarize the attitude of the tech uh, officials and 
our Department of Justice officials who are supposed to be monitoring the attacks on our electoral system from foreign adversaries as, well, could we summarize that as just saying, well, if it happens, it happens. We'll just have to roll with it. Is that overstating the case? Anyway, that, that's two in a row that are kind of blowing my mind. And uh, let, let's take, let's, let's, let's make it three. We have uh, focused in on President Donald Trump and his, uh, his ways. And I think that we, like everybody else in the country, tends to probably put a little too much emphasis on the man at the top, the man who is, in many respects, the figurehead. Yes, we would say he's nuts. Yes, we, we would say he's, he's kind of a crook. Yes, we would say he's possibly the most ignorant man ever sit, you know, to sit in the Oval Office. And it seems pretty undeniable that he's done a tremendous amount to destroy what we have to be considered democratic norms in the U.S. of A. But please allow me to quote from a piece by Robert Schlesinger, an opinion piece that says Mitch McConnell has done far more to destroy democratic norms than Donald Trump. Notes the op-ed. No one should be surprised that Mitch McConnell has promised that any potential 2020 Trump Supreme Court nominee will not get the Merrick Garland treatment, i.e. will not be held up until after the presidential race is decided. Notes Schlesinger. McConnell is the living, breathing, calculating face of everything that is wrong with our current politics. To the extent to which our system has become dysfunctional, McConnell is the single chief architect of that sclerosis. President Donald Trump is a dangerous, blundering wrecking ball. But McConnell was undermining the system well before and is likely to outlast him. Nothing exemplifies McConnell's role as norm-wrecking partisan warrior than the Garland affair. Almost as soon as word of Justice Antonin Scalia's death emerged, McConnell had promised to block anyone President Barack Obama might nominate saying, quote, the American people should have a voice in the selection of the next Supreme Court justice. Schlesinger notes the pious, pompous McConnell said this at the time, noting that Obama was then a lame duck president. But he notes the American people had had a voice in that selection when they elected Obama less than four years earlier to serve as their president. The Senate hadn't confirmed an election year court nominee for the better part of a century. McConnell and Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley pointed out, ignoring the fact that the last time such a circumstance had arisen, it was more than a century earlier. And at that time, the Senate did both vote and vote to confirm. In any rate, what had Schlesinger so worked up was the fact that when asked last week about a hypothetical 2020 Supreme Court nomination, McConnell was direct and said, oh, we'd fill it with a smirk. David Popp, a spokesman for McConnell, said the difference between now and three years ago is that at that time, the White House was controlled by a Democrat and the Senate by Republicans. This time, both are controlled by the GOP. Oh, that, 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 makes, it, that makes sense. Popp also pointed reporters to comments McConnell made last October that the tradition going back to the 1880s has been if a vacancy occurs in a presidential election year and there is a different party in control of the Senate than the presidency, it is not filled. Well, not really. Schlesinger notes, here's the complete list of split government election years, Supreme Court nominees in the last 130 years. Merrick Garland. That's it. He notes, if you want to get expansive, here's the entire list of election years, split government, pre-election Supreme Court nominees. Well, there's Merrick Garland in 2016 
and Melville Fuller in 1888. If you listen to McConnell, you might think the Senate routinely refused to consider any election year nomination to the high court because of tradition. But the fact is, between 1888 and 2016, it never came up. And by the way, when it did come up in 1888, the Democratic president, Grover Cleveland, nominated Fuller to be chief justice. The Republican-controlled Senate confirmed him overwhelmingly. Of course, we would like to point out to history buffs that may be listening that Melville Fuller, a Democrat who had managed Stephen Douglas's losing presidential campaign in 1860 but avoided military service during the Civil War, went on to preside over a court that upheld the South's Jim Crow laws in Plessy versus Ferguson, threw out federal income tax laws, a ruling rebuked by the 16th Amendment, and made antitrust cases harder to prosecute. Notes Schlesinger, Garland w- would have done better. Anyway, Schlesinger notes the Garland power play was without precedent in United States history and whacked away at the kind of inter-party cooperation necessary for our system to work. So yeah, I think that's fair enough. If we're going to point fingers at the sorry state of current politics, uh, let's point a few fingers in Mitch McConnell's direction. I probably shouldn't do this, but I, I will cite a, uh, an otherwise credible source I, I have in, uh, in the East Coast who claims that Mitch McConnell is a closeted gay man and that his marriage to Labor Secretary Elaine Chow is, is done for show and that his anti-gay Political stances have angered those uh, people in the LGBT community who are rather unhappy with this hypocrisy. This is just something I, uh, I cannot confirm, but I would note that it comes from a generally reliable source. And frankly, I don't mind sticking my thumb in Mitch McConnell's eye just a little bit. Speaking of sticking a thumb in somebody's eye, which is something that dirty boxers are, are known to do, we apparently have a new world heavyweight champion and the first Mexican to hold the title, although I believe he's actually a Mexican-American. Yes, apparently Anthony Ruiz Jr. has become the heavyweight world champion after a TKO upset of Anthony Joshua, which got me thinking, when's the last time you even heard about a heavyweight champion? Remember back in the days of Muhammad Ali, the days of Mike Tyson even, et cetera, et cetera? You know, there was a lot of talk about who was the world heavyweight champion, I think, because of the astute promoting of boxing by uh, people like Don King. So I guess my reaction to the news of a new heavyweight champion was, oh my God, we still have heavyweight champions? Anyway, to stumble our way back into into politics, uh, it is a sad thing to look at you know, some of what's going on in the United States and, and, and you know, how sad our, our political leadership has, has often been. But I guess there is... <laughs> There is some slight consolation taking a look around the world and seeing how, well, you know, it, it could be worse. Down in the Philippines, their current president, Rodrigo Duterte, announced this week that he used to be gay. But uh, evidently he reformed when, when, he, when he met his current wife. Well, technically, technically, I guess it was his ex-wife. When he met his ex-wife, he cured himself of being gay. Duterte has also distinguished himself of late in the highly Catholic nation of the Philippines by by attacking the Catholic Church. He has lambasted its institutions and its symbols. He's called God stupid. He's called the Holy Trinity silly and saints drunkards. Bishops he described of 
Bishops, he's described as useless fools. Rather horrifyingly, he added, kill them last December, and several priests have been in murdered on Mr. Duterte's watch. He also says he was molested by a priest as a boy. We've only got a few minutes left on today's program. One thing I do want to hit on is something we continue to hit on. The fact that the tech industry is causing a housing crisis in the Bay Area. It is bringing in huge numbers of people, playing them, paying them large sums of money, and then complaining about the fact that they're buying up all the housing. An example of how bad this has gotten is the fact that in old Palo Alto, admittedly a nice neighborhood, there's a lot, an empty lot, up for sale right now for $9 million. Of course, it should be noted that the estate next door to it is going for $20 million. And around the block, a former Facebook executive is offering his one-acre compound for $40 million. Article by Lewis Hansen in the East Bay Times notes that the rush of tech expansions, strong stock prices, and hope for IPO windfalls has the top end of the Bay Area economy accelerating like a Tesla in ludicrous mode. Five recently listed compounds in the community, which is just a mile from Stanford University, are asking between 11 and $40 million, according to Zillow. At the low end, an 880-square-foot two-bedroom house comes in at $1.9 million. And in an item that manages to combine two of our favorite topics, uh, tech weasels and water thieves... There's this. The largest water agency in Silicon Valley has been secretly negotiating to purchase a sprawling cattle ranch in Merced County that sits atop, that sits atop billions of gallons of groundwater, a move that would create a promising new water source and probably spark a political battle between the Bay Area and Central Valley farmers. I think we made passing mention of this last week. and We'll make, I'm sure, passing mention of it again because people are being very closed-mouthed about this deal. The chairwoman of the board for the Water District, which is a government agency that provides drinking water and flood control to 2 million residents in Santa Clara County, said last week she could not discuss specifics, but the district is looking to buy the property as a possible location for a new groundwater bank. Anyway, the power of Silicon Valley uh, being, uh, you know, uh, turning its, its, its avaricious eye toward the Central Valley water is making some people nervous. Jay Lund, professor of civil and environmental engineering at UC Davis, was quoted as saying, It's one of those eternal things. If you're one of the neighbors of the people selling the land, you're worried that they are selling water you need for drought. Speaking of needing water, if we ever go put a base on the moon, we're going to need some up there. And the debate still goes on as to whether there is ice and water lying below the lunar surface. There's excellent evidence for ice in some craters that are near the poles on uh, our, our celestial neighbor. But... Now they're claiming that although the rocks they brought back from the moon were dry, 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 if they dug a little bit further down, they'd have found water. Well, we hope so. Anyway, the latest evidence on this is, is, comes from NASA's uh, Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. They're tracking uh, water being released from the lunar surface via satellites, and they find that this seems to increase when there are meteor showers, indicating that the meteors are impacting and hitting hard enough and deep enough to release that subsurface water. Well, maybe. Cool, 
Well, that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Putsi Hanstangel, and we'll see you next week at the same time. And we we'll-